Welcome to Richard Bay Talk. All right, we weren't here last week, and uh, we won't be around for the next couple of weeks because I'm on my way back to New York City. I even have my celebratory uh, New York City mug uh, with coffee for this morning. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, there's no place in the world to be at Christmas time other than New York City. It's just magical. I'll be there a few days before and a little bit past New Year's. Although I've never, even though I lived one block from Broadway on 57th Street, in my entire life I never walked down and stood there in the freezing cold on uh, New Year's Eve. I, I, I just think that is crazy. Uh, I'm Richard Bay. I'm here with Albert Reynoso. Here he is. Okay. Hello. He's my good pal. And we finally got together this week and we had a hash out of everything, right? It was nice. Thank you for that. It was nice. Barry, let's give a shout out to Barry Fresh, which makes some of the best uh, corned beef hash you can possibly have. And other and, stuff. And other stuff, too. It's just delicioso. All right. So let's uh, get to work here. Well... <laughs> One of the big stories this morning and for the past week has been, of course, Donald Trump and his rhetoric. Some of his rhetoric uh, seeming to echo that of the Third Reich when he refers to non-white immigrants. As you watch this clip, remember, he's talking about Latin America, Asia, and Africa. He doesn't mention the fact that his first wife was an immigrant, but uh, she was from Europe. His second wife was an immigrant. She was from Europe. His own mother was an immigrant. She was from England or Scotland, I think. Anyway, my own grandmother, both of my parents, well, my mother was born here. My father was born in Canada to two immigrants, one Turkish, one English. My, um, my mother, my grandmother, my mother's mother, my grandmother, she came to America from Prince Edward Island by way of her family's journey from Ireland. And um, I didn't discover this till years after she died. She never became an American citizen. She didn't have a visa. She was an illegal immigrant all those years. And one of the sweetest uh, relatives that, that I ever had. Anyway, let's get to Trump and what he is saying on the campaign trail. This is from a few days ago, but he's even gone further uh, last night at a campaign rally. Listen to this. When they do that, we got a lot of work to do. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. They poison mental institutions and prisons all over the world, not just in South America, not just the three or four countries that we think about, but all over the world. They're coming into our country from Africa, from Asia, all over the world. They're pouring into our country. Nobody's even looking at them. They just come in. Uh, the crime is going to be tremendous. The terrorism is going to be. Terrorism is going to be. And then we built a tremendous piece of the wall, and then we... Yeah, they're poisoning America. Hmm. Except not your wife, not your mother, not your, not your first wife. And uh, for a lot of people, it, you know, uh, I think it was Mark Twain who said, 
History may not repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. So let me just try this for a moment here. No, that's the wrong way. It's got to be straight down here. Yeah, there. Okay. For years, America kept its white racial stock pure, and it did not mix with any other racial stock. They came to dominate the American continent and will remain the master of it as long as the element does not adulterate its blood. All the great civilizations of the past became decadent because the original creative race died out as a result of the contamination of the blood. They poison the blood of others. This poison has invaded the national body. The open borders of our native country and especially the strong influx of foreign blood into the interior of our country. Sieg Heil! I mean, there was this report years ago that Trump kept the speeches of Adolf Hitler on a nightstand next to his bed. It came from his wife, Ivanka, in a divorce proceeding. And there was, uh, there was a friend who said, yes, I did give him a copy of those speeches. What I, what I just read to you, with a few little changes, is from Mein Kampf, Hitler's seminal oeuvre. And uh, the changes I made had to do mostly with changing country, uh, Reich to country, and North America to America. Uh, but like I said, history may not repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. Now, we'll, what will probably surprise you is that I also think we need a severe restriction on immigration at the border. And it's not because of racism. It's not because of fentanyl. Close to 90% of fentanyl is seized at official border crossings. And even the immigration officials say that it's usually smuggled by people who are legally um, authorized to cross the border. Or it's, and more than half of it is brought in by American citizens. I mean, I looked at some stats before. Last year, it was like 20,000 of the cases of fentanyl coming into the country were done at ports of entry, over 50% by American citizens. So it's, it's not because of fentanyl. It's not because of racism. It's because the system we have is overwhelming and out of control. So the Republicans have that plan in Congress and some of the Hispanic caucus are calling it racist. Um, but uh, they're talking about lim uh, lifting the obligation you must prove in order to get amnesty. As far as I'm concerned, I think we should put a pause to amnesty until we get through all those cases that are already in this logjam. We just can't deal with it all. It is an emergency. It's not because they're, as Trump says, they're from mental institutions, they're criminals, they're rapists, they're sending us their worst people. Uh, no, 
But when he says, uh, let's send them back to Africa or let's not let them come here from Africa, maybe he has a point when it comes to Elon Musk. <laughs> I wouldn't mind if we sent him back to Africa. Oh, no, but he's white, so that's okay. But our system is overwhelmed. It's out of control. We need an emergency pause, and it should be in place. And as far as I'm concerned, I think that it would stop this tidal wave of uh, migrants at the border. And let's get through the backlog of those cases. 80%, if you believe stats, some people citing things, 90% of them are amnesty claims that are not valid and will be denied. So, you know, I'm sure a lot of you will disagree with me, but I think we should just put a pause on amnesty. Um, in terms of immigration. Now, I, I do think we should have humanitarian amnesty, which is another thing the Republicans want to get rid of. And, you know, when we start not allowing Cubans, I, I just like to see in the next election how all the Hispanics in South Florida who voted for Trump, how they're going to rush out and, and vote for Trump again because there's a big Cuban and Venezuelan community in South Florida. And they are two of the countries that are on the humanitarian list. Of, uh, uh, it was used in the past to bring over uh, Afghan interpreters and those who helped the American uh, military action in Afghanistan. It was used to bring some people in from Ukraine. Of course, they're okay, you know, because, uh, you know, hey, look at that. Um but I wonder how the Cubans and the Venezuelans in South Florida are going to feel when they find out that there is no way for their relatives to come in or uh, no way for people fleeing the dictatorships in those countries to enter the United States. But in, in other instances, I think we should just put a pause on amnesty and say it's an emergency. We have to get through this backlog. All right. So... Uh, the other thing about Trump that caused a lot of discussion over the last few weeks is um, the interview he had with Sean Hannity where he asked him if he wanted to be a dictator. And Trump said, yeah, just on day one. Uh, we've had some members of his entourage say they're going to go after everybody. Trump has called... Uh, a group of Americans, vermin, another echo of Hitler, vermin. Um, but anyway, so Trump's going to be a dictator on day one, but we did get a hold of his calendar. Can we take a look at that? There it is. That's his calendar for January, day one, day one. And when he said day one, did you ever hear of a dictator who freely said while they were in power, I'm going to relinquish my power. I'm going to give up my authoritarianism. I, has, there, has there been one in history who has, who has done such a thing after they have grabbed the absolute power in a country? I don't know. And it reminded me of this old commercial. Maybe if you're around my age, you'll remember it. Um, power is like a potato chip. Watch this. Chew. 
What have you got there? Waste potato chips, Dad, but you can't eat one. Well, of course I can. Now run along and do your lessons. Oliver. Oliver, I'll have another. Uh-uh, I said one. And so you did, didn't you? <laughs> so you did. <laughs> I knew he couldn't do it. <laughs> and Trump won't be able to do it either. After day one, he'll be grabbing more and more power. Bet you can't be a dictator for one day. Um, all right, here's another thing that I, I, I just don't get. And the issue of abortion here in Florida has been, um, uh, has had people all over the state with petitions, I've signed them, to put a referendum on the ballot in the next election to legalize abortion up until viability, which is really what they have in California, um, uh, unless a doctor thinks it is medical, medically necessary to protect the health of the mother. All right, so this petition, of course, the DeSantis regime, which wants a six-week abortion ban, wants to keep voters from voting on this, and they are challenging the referendum in the courts, uh, in other states, these sort of referendums has passed. And if you remember in Florida, we passed a referendum that would basically outlaw partisan gerrymandering. It was embedded in our Constitution. And yet DeSantis created a very partisan, uh, an egregiously partisan gerrymandered map. How did he do it? We also had a referendum here that it would allow felons who have served their time to be enfranchised again, to be able to vote. And then they passed this thing, you've got to pay everything that you owe the court. There was no database. You couldn't figure out if you, if you owed money or you didn't owe money or you owed a, a lot of money. There's one woman, Mary McCarty, who was the Palm Beach commissioner, who actually went to prison. She went to prison for malfeasance in government but she wanted to vote for Trump so badly that she paid $100,000 in court fees so she could go to the polls. So in both cases, DeSantis and the right-wing legislature of Florida found ways to subvert the will of the people. How do they do it? Well, there's seven judges on the Supreme Court. Every single one of them was placed there by a Republican. And five of the seven judges on the Supreme Court were placed there by DeSantis. They don't have gavels. They have a rubber stamp. Oomp, oomp, oomp. Anyway, on the other hand, I wonder why Democrats just don't say this clearly. Because Republicans keep laying the trap. Oh, you want to have abortion up until the moment of birth. It even sprang up in that debate between Gavin Newsom and um, Ron DeSantis with Sean Hannity, who was a clearly unbiased, uh, you know, moderator of the debate, totally politically unengaged, although every graphic ran down California and praised Florida. Anyway, 
in California, they do have limitations on a third um, trimester abortion. They, you can have an abortion until the fetus is viable, which is usually determined as the 23rd to 24th week. But the law says in California, no law shall prohibit, penalize, delay, or restrict abortion before viability or when necessary to protect the patient's health as determined by the patient's healthcare professional. So that is the law, which is pretty much what Roe v. Wade said. But here is DeSantis during that debate. On the issue of the extreme exception that you highlight as it relates to the issue of later term abortion, it's almost always because of a fetal anomaly, the life of the mother. And in those rare cases, I trust, and answer your question, I trust the mother and her doctor to make that decision. So in other words, I want to be clear on this. If a woman and her doctor, for any reason, not for any reason. No, it's, no, no, it's no. I'm asking. Extremely rare. Should there this be? This is a canard. I know where you guys are going, Sean. You're even I, uncomfortable asking, with this whole issue. I, and I, I watch understand your. I watch this is your, where you guys have I'm to asking, go to cover for the should, extreme should anti-abortion be, agenda of Ron DeSantis. Should there be? Hurt your would you support a ban on abortion in seven, eighth, or ninth month I just per, if the, the if the mother's life is it not is in jeopardy? Extreme extreme exception. People aren't going on and having abortions. Should it be illegal then? Unless something if devastating has happened. Should it be it illegal? should be up to the mother and her doctor and her conscience. And it so almost the answer always, is no restriction. I, I've already answered it. And I'll, and no I'll restriction. just reinforce it. To cover okay. up, again, hold on, for the most extreme abortion ban in the country. I have a simple question, though. This is important. No, 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 will no. You I'm not, asking the question. Ron DeSantis, will you or will you not sign a six-week ban okay. in the unlikely uh, case of the United States? Let's would talk you about, sign a national ban? Let's talk about your you state. You that. He's getting you had, saved You had 15 weeks. fundamental question. Uh, yeah, of course, uh, DeSantis wouldn't answer the question, just as he didn't answer the question when Charlie Crist asked him, will you, this was when he was running for governor, Will you fill out your your uh, your term as governor of Florida? Do you pledge to fill out your term? Well, he wouldn't answer that question either. But of course, Hannity's pressing him. I, I don't get, why can't somebody just say simply, third trimester abortions are hey, can prohibited. We start, can we start from there again? Because your mic sounds terrible. Why? You sound, you sound, it sounds like it's far away from you. It sounds like I hear the whole room. Well, is, is that is that because I plugged in this thing? No, it's not. It's because where's your mic position in the same it's place? Right, right, yeah, in the same place. How does it sound to you now? Sounds very hollow. All right, let me see. If I pull this out, hold on. How does it sound now? Same thing. No same good. Thing. Same Just thing. Just shake your head if it's no good. No good. Same thing. Ah, oh, Jesus. On the issue of the extreme exception that you highlight as it relates to the issue of later term abortion, it's almost always because of a fetal anomaly, the life of the mother. And in those rare cases, I trust, and answer your question, I trust the mother and her doctor to make that decision. So in other words, I want to be clear on this. If a woman and her doctor, for any reason, 
Not for any reason. No, it's, no, no, it's no. I'm asking. Extremely rare. Should there this be? This is a canard. I know where you guys are going, Sean. You're even I, uncomfortable asking, with this whole issue. I, and I, I watched your. I watched this is your, where you guys have I'm to asking, go to cover for the should, extreme should anti-abortion agenda of Ron DeSantis. Should there be? Hurt your would you support a ban on abortion in seven, eighth, or ninth month for, if the, the if the mother's life is it not is in jeopardy? Extreme extreme exception. People aren't going on and having abortions. Should it be illegal then? Unless something if devastating has happened. Should it be it illegal? should be up to the mother and her doctor and her conscience. And it so almost the answer always, is no restriction. I, I've already answered it. And I'll, and no I'll restriction. just reinforce it. To cover okay. up, again, no, hold on, for the most extreme abortion ban in the country. I have a simple question, though. This is important. No, 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 will no. You I'm not, asking the question. Ron DeSantis, will you or will you not sign a six-week ban okay. in the unlikely uh, case you have the United States? Let's talk you about, sign a national ban? Let's talk about your you state. You that. He's you had, saved you had 15 on that fundamental weeks. question. Uh, oh, brother. Well, keep it simple. Why, why can't Democrats just say this? Abortion in the third trimester, start with their proposition. Abortion in the th third trimester is prohibited for a healthy mother and a healthy fetus and a birth that will not affect the health or life of the mother. Just say that. You know, which is pretty much what Roe v. Wade said. It said states... Uh, have no restrictions in the first trimester. They have uh, some that they can institute in the second trimester and in the third trimester um, that uh, it, it would only be available for a mother whose health is in danger. It's, it's pretty much restricted in the in the third trimester. Listen, a mother isn't going through six months of pregnancy and then going, you know... I think I decided to uh, just get an abortion. I went through the morning sickness. I've gone through my stomach growing. I've gone through the mood swings. But all of a sudden now in the, uh, in the uh, seventh month of pregnancy, after going through all this, I think I'll get an abortion. That ain't happening. But if it ever did happen, yeah, I agree. It should be prohibited. All right, let's move on. Then the other thing that's been going on this week, of course, was Hunter Biden continuing um, and the impeachment of Joe Biden. You know, listen, they're not even being serious about this anymore. You know, when they're on TV, there's nothing there. Seinfeld was a, a show about nothing. This is an impeachment about nothing. There is nothing there. So where do they have to go? They have to step out into some wild conspiracy theories that have no substantiation. And Jake Tapper couldn't even keep a straight face when he spoke to James Comer. Take a look at this. Point, do those loans, if you're not going to pay yeah. them back, become income? So we think that this is just the, the tip of the iceberg. We think there are many more crimes. And my concern is that Weiss may have... Uh, indicted hunter biden to protect him from ah, having to be deposed yes in the in the house oversight committee yes. on wednesday he but indicted we, him to protect him yes the classic rubric he indicted him to protect him i got it well look this whole this, this jake this whole thing's been about a cover-up you know you've got two that's why he indicted concerns. him to, to protect him to, to cover it up well he Look, you indict him on the least little thing, the gun charge and not paying taxes. He's facing prison? like 17 I mean, additional years in prison. 
Uh, uh, whoa, yeah, whoa. Oh, whoa, whoa. Wait a second. First, it was a, a conspiracy uh, because David Weiss wouldn't indict him, and they were screaming bloody murder about that. Now it's a conspiracy because he did indict him. And wait a second. I thought they were screaming, these are serious charges, the gun charge and the tax evasion. Comer just said, they're nothing charges. I mean, <laughs> Jake Tapper couldn't even keep a straight face. He started laughing in this guy's face. Um, so anyway, there's some division in this country between people who, some people in this country are just delusional. And the others are vermin and um, infecting the blood of the country. <laughs> so I, I have had seriously, some friends ask me if it's possible that we will have a civil war. So at this time of great national division, of course, Hollywood would not shirk from taking advantage of this anxiety and give us a cinematic civil war where um, the red states are battling the federal government. It's, it's 1861 all over again. Take a look at this. It's coming. States have seceded. The United States Army ramps up activity. The White House issued warnings to the Western forces as well as the Florida. Do you regret the use of airstrikes against American citizens? We're moving to D.C. today. We need to go down there. They shoot journalists on sight in the Capitol. Every instinct in me says this is death. What if? Every time I survived the war zone, I thought I was sending a warning home. Don't do this. But here we are. There's some kind of misunderstanding here. What? Well, you're American, okay? Okay. What kind of American are you? You don't know? <laughs> the Western forces will reach the White House on July 4th. Oh my God. Get in the car! Get in the car! Move, move, move! You're gonna hang back. I'm not hanging back. One nation under God. Indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Go, 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 go. God bless America. All right. So let me ask you a question. Will the maggots be inspired by this, or will the uh, liberals... Um, be frightened by this. What will be the result? But anyway, that's coming your way. I, let me recommend, there is another movie. That's a big budget movie. Kirsten Dunst is in it and this all those special effects. It's directed by the guy who did Ex Machina. Um, and he had another movie that was very interesting as well. Um, so he's, he's a good director. And this is, as you can see, a big, big budget film. There's a small budget film called Bushwick that I saw years ago. You can find it if you really look for streaming. Um, it's called Bushwick, and it's about the Texas National Guard invading Brooklyn. 
And in the beginning, they're very successful. They have tanks, they have helicopters, they have, you know, armed troops uh, with uh, M16s running through the streets. But in the end, <laughs> this is my favorite part, a coalition of Hasidim and Puerto Ricans and blacks and liberal New Yorkers finally win the day and drive them out. <laughs> they all get together. They drop their differences and they all fight uh, the invading uh, Red Army. Isn't it funny? A Red Army now would mean something totally different than what it meant 50 years ago. All right, the movie's called Bushwick. So if, if you can't wait to see this one, try to find that one. All right, so this week we also had another... Uh, uh, an, an, another controversy that divided so many of us, and it had uh, uh, reverbications throughout the country. And that had to do with the three college professors. And, you, you know, you, you, you've seen the clips. I don't have to play them all. Here's one, Elise Stefanik um, grilling uh, the president of Harvard. Admissions offers be rescinded or any disciplinary action be taken against students or applicants who say from the river to the sea or intifada advocating for the murder of Jews. Uh, well, those things don't advocate for the murder of Jews specifically. I was in, I was in uh, Israel during the first intifada and it was, uh, yeah, it was resistance. It was a revolt. But it wasn't genocide. Uh, Elise Stefanik asked at one point, um, what would happen if, if somebody advocated for genocide on your college campus? What will you do? And the college professor said, uh, I think it was the uh, pen, she said, I've never seen anybody advocate for genocide. Hey, chanting intifada is not calling for genocide. And from the river to the sea, there are uh, Jewish groups. There's a group, um, Jews for Peace, that are out there. And there's thousands of people. They shut down the, the, um, the expressway, in, uh, or freeway as they call it, in California. And uh, they have chance in that group. What they want is a, uh, a two-state solution for the Palestinians. And they also they've called for a ceasefire and there's Jews in that group. Um, Elise Stefanik snuck in B, uh, BDS, which is the boycott of Israel on college campuses. I don't support that. But shouldn't an American have the right to boycott a company whose policies they disagree with? Shouldn't you have to... Should should you be able to say, I ain't going to play Sun City when there was apartheid in South Africa? Now, the first time I heard from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, I was in England. And all the way, coming up from Parliament, all the way to, um, to Piccadilly Circus, I'm thousands of people. And I heard that for the first time. My first reaction was, yeah, and what are you going to do about the 7 million Jews that live in Israel? But I'll also tell you, the first time I heard Israelis and American Jews talk about Judea and Samaria, I thought, yeah, and what the heck 
are you going to do with the three million Palestinians who live on the West Bank? Uh, I hear Jews talk about, oh, Judea and Samaria, it's so important for us to reclaim our biblical lands, as if uh, God was writing out, uh, as if he was a real estate lawyer called in for closing. Well, I got some news for you. In the Bible, it says that God told Abraham he would have the land between the Nile and the Euphrates. So if he was making promises to people, hey, Israel has a long way to go. They should have a big slab of Egypt and a, and a, a pretty good-sized sliver of Iraq in there. And what Jews don't realize is that this Samaritans who lived in Samaria, the Judeans didn't see them as real Jews. They saw them as heretics. They rewrote the first uh, five books of Moses, they they didn't recognize the temple uh, in Jerusalem, and they were despised by Judeans. In fact, when Jesus uh, created the parable of the Good Samaritan, he picked he picked Samaria and Samaritans because they were despised by uh, the Israelis that lived in uh, in in Judea, and he wanted to demonstrate that even these people that are despised could be more generous, more empathetic, more caring, more human than the Jewish priests who refused to help um, the person who was in need of aid at the, at, the, uh, at the side of the street. All right, so look, what they're trying to do is restrict any criticism of Israel or... And, and there's a discussion about this. Is, anti, is anti-Zionism anti-Semitism? Well, it could be. Just like an assault could be a hate crime. Or it could just be a punch in the nose. Yeah, there are probably anti-Semites who hate Israel and want it to disappear. But there are other people who want a two-state solution and even some who are calling for a one-state solution um, where Palestinians and Jews would live together. But man, Thomas Friedman, as he pointed out, three million Palestinians on the West Bank, two and a half million in Gaza, and in Israel itself, there's two million people living in Israel as Israeli citizens who are not Jews, most of them Arabs. So, you know, it's, what are you going to do with all these people? So if some of these chants, intifada, well, you know, it's been used before. Here, I went to look it up. The uh, Iraqi intifada in 1952 was a series of strikes and riots protesting the monarchy. In Arabic, it means shaking off. It means resistance. It means an uprising. Uh, the Tunisian Revolution was called the Tunisian Intifada, and there were and, and those weren't calling for the uh, extermination of Jews or genocide. <coughs> but some of this has just gone crazy. There was a teacher who placed the Israeli flag in his classroom, 
And then there was a an Arab or Muslim child who said, I don't think that should be in our classroom. The teacher screamed at him, told him he was going to behead him. You can't take away my flag. Can you imagine if a gay man, you know, they, they don't want gay teachers to hang the gay flag in the classroom. Suppose he threatened any child that said take down the, or, or parent who said take down the gay flag. This teacher said, that's my flag. Another teacher, because they used the slogan um, from the river to the sea in one of their Facebook posts, the teacher was fired. How ridiculous can this get? Well, take a look at this guy. This guy was hired to play Santa Claus in the parade on Long Island, and he went to a community discussion that was called Tough Questions on Israel. I, there he is. Okay, he was supposed to be Santa Claus, this poor guy. And he lived in the Middle East, so, and he speaks Arabic. So, but he's an American. He's not a Muslim. But he went to this meeting, and he asked some t- tough questions. And the, and, the, and the panel that was there, he said, basically was reiterating Netanyahu's and the Israeli right-wing government's talking points. So he didn't curse anybody out. He didn't say from the river to the sea. He didn't call for intifada. He asked tough questions. And this conference was supposed to be answering tough questions on Israel. So what happened? 11 people complained, and he was yanked from his job as Santa. Why, why Jews should care who plays Santa is another issue, but we'll leave that one alone. Now, this week as well, we heard about the hostages who were being killed, and you know, that was tragic and terrible. Um, the hostages were bare-chested, took their shirts off to demonstrate they weren't carrying any bombs. They were unarmed. They were raising uh, and, and, uh, and, and um, waving a white flag, the international symbol of surrender. The Israeli sh- soldiers shot all three, but one of them was still alive. And he crawled into a building, shouting in Hebrew for help. So they went inside, and they shot and killed him too. Now, listen, this is no whataboutism, what, you know, there's no comparison to what Hamas did. That kind of slaughter is is beyond humanity. It is something that is almost inconceivable. And the kind of people that did that are are beyond thought. But, you know, people kept saying, oh, this is, you know, and it is, it's a tragedy that they killed the hostages. But think about it. How many Palestinian civilians might be shirtless, might come out and say, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, surrendering with their arms up? These were three civilians who were shot. But there, uh, would anybody care if there were three Palestinian civilians who were shot in a similar circumstances? Uh, w- would we be talking about it? I doubt it. 
So, I mean, listen, I, when, I was, when I went to Hebrew school and had my bar mitzvah, I had to hold the Torah, and the rabbi, who was very sly character, made everybody who had a bar mitzvah hold the Torah and pledge that they would continue their Jewish education beyond bar mitzvah, because what happens to a lot of Jews these days? It's bar mitzvah, let's go out and eat, the, have the big party, and then you never see them again in synagogue. So he wanted to make sure that that child at 13 and his family would be attached uh, to Judaism. So I went for two years, and one of the things we were taught was about the compassion of Jews, about Jews and justice, even standing up for justice when it, when it wasn't just justice for them. I mean, my favorite Norman Rockwell picture is not one of the little kids sitting at the, at the, at the candy store with the cop or, or even Ruby Bridges, a beautiful uh, painting by Norman Rockwell. But he did one of the two Jews and a black man who were killed by the KKK all together in Mississippi and then bulldozed into a common grave. And those Jews that went down there, as well as the ones that were part of the Freedom Riders, they fought for other people, other people who were oppressed. And why? Because, well, there's two things. As Jews, our lives are probably, especially for my generation, I, I grew up, what was it, uh, six years after the Holocaust. So it's always in your mind. And uh, the other thing is that Jews understand oppression. They understand people who want to see you dead. And they understand that justice is all important. Now, I had a friend who sent me an email recently because he thought people were going crazy on the Internet. Everything was about uh, genocide. and One of the most disgusting things was this meme sent out of somebody with, a, with a, um, the numbers from a concentration camp on their arm, and underneath it says, uh, well, it has to be in context or something like Using the Holocaust as a political meme, uh, you know, to, uh, for something that didn't happen. You know, the ADL had to release a clarification and an apology because people were saying that um, they were chanting uh, calls for genocide of Jews at some of these demonstrations. But when they listened to the tape, what it really said, what they were really saying was, yet we accuse Israel of genocide, which is also a complete uh, exaggeration and not true. So he said to me, why, why, why are people, you don't understand, for Jews who have had thousands of years of oppression, who had a 20th century governmental plan for extermination 
the idea that underneath it all we can't trust the world and its peoples is ingrained in most Jews, especially those Jews of of my generation or those that grew up during the report of the Holocaust. There's a, a, a Jewish short story writer who wrote this short story, what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank. And the gist of the story is, we talk about Anne Frank, of course, tremendous tragedy, a brilliant young girl, life cut short by the Nazis. But he says, underneath it, what we are really asking is, is there someone in our life who would hide us, who would risk their own life for us? Is there a meep geese in anyone that we could trust? And the characters in there start to think. And if it meant the extermination of their family or the loss of their business, would they put themselves on the line the way that Meep Gies, the Dutch woman who hid them in the attic. Or Schwerner and Goodman who went to Mississippi and died with Cheney, asking for, the, for justice for oppressed black Americans. Who would we know who would risk their lives for that? So, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think other, I mean, non-Jews, the Goyim, for them, they won't really understand the psyche of this generation of older Jews. So this guy wrote me an email asking me why people were just seemingly going crazy on Facebook. And I said, this is what I wrote back to him. Racism exists. Anti-Semitism exists. Some people see both everywhere in everything. Now, I've always said that there is more racism in this world than white people believe and less than black people perceive. The same is true about Jews. In both cases, there is a very real precedent of traumatic victimhood. For blacks, it is slavery and a hundred years of Jim Crow oppression. And for Jews, it is the Holocaust. Now, there have been a few episodes of Larry David on Curb Your Enthusiasm, if I remember correctly, where he satirizes Jews who see the Holocaust everywhere. And yes, anti-Semitism is real, and it's a growing problem in this country. But it is not everywhere you look. And for some people... Uh, it, it's an obsession to find it. You know, many people say, oh, the blacks, all they think about is racism. Well, these, not all. I mean, there are Jews out there, as I said, Jews for peace who are marching for a pause in the, uh, in the military action in Gaza. But uh, there is that feeling that, yes, it's Jews against the world. There is another feeling Jews have, and that is for Israel. And it's hard to understand, unless you are a Jew, what Israel means to Jews. Not Judea and Samaria. 
I mean, let's understand that somebody whose family has had a farm there, olive groves, sheep, you know, cattle, who has three generations back, they have lived on this land. Four generations back, they have lived on this land. Does he have more of a right to live there than a guy who wakes up in Brooklyn and says, hey, let's go to the West Bank. The Israeli government will subsidize our housing. Do you know that 15% of the settlers on the West Bank, and they are not very nice people. They're not Hamas. But, uh, but they, have, they have killed some of the Palestinians. They have tortured them. They have beaten them. I would refer you to look at that big piece in, not this week, but last week's New York Times about what the Palestinians have to endure on the West Bank and the humiliations every day. But, uh, you know, they have a right too. But for Jews, the Jewish connection to Israel, it's in our prayers. It's in our parents. It's, it's in our perception that it's Jews against the world and there's a place that is safe for Jews. So anyway, um, in 1988, I did a special on the 40th anniversary of Israel. And my guests at the end of the program were Ed Koch and Alan King, who had created a scholarship for Jewish and Arab students to study at Hebrew University, and Dr. Ruth, all of them talking about what Israel means to them and means to Jews. Take a look at this. I am a proud Jew, and uh, I say, people ask me, why are you so proud? Not arrogant, but proud. I say, because well, I'm a descendant of King David and King Solomon, and my uh, history goes back 5,000 years. There are only two other peoples in the world that can do that. Those are the Chinese and the Egyptians who have lived in antiquity and are still living today as a vital people. So I'm proud of my traditions and being Jewish or being a Jew is both a religion and a nationality. Your scholarship fund is non-sectarian. It is not only for Jews. Why, why was that important to you? Well, I thought the fact that uh, we do have our Arab brothers in Israel and I thought that, uh, that the uh, scholarship fund should be, obviously, for anyone who qualifies. Well, Alan, how many times have you been to Israel? Oh, good Lord, I don't know. Once a year, I was there when it was a British mandate in 1947. So I've been there, I don't know, 50 times probably. When you were there for the British mandate, how did you feel? What went through your mind? I didn't believe at the time that I'd ever see a, a, an Israel state, a Jewish state. Uh, I just wanted to be. I just wanted to be in the Holy Land. See, I was raised uh, during the Depression by my mother's father, who was a rabbi, and my father, who was an atheist. So I had the best of both. But he was. My father was a Zionist, and I always remember there was always a little blue and white box nailed to the wall, a pishker or pushker, depending on what part of Eastern Europe you came from, and. 
there was very little money in the house, but every, all the chains that my father would put on a dress always went into that box, the Palestine National Fund. And then, of course, I don't think we ever ended a meal where my grandfather didn't say, next in your Yerushalayim. So, it's, of course, it's part of my, my life. Now, more than 40 years after your first visit to Israel, and as we celebrate the 40th anniversary of Israel's independence, what feelings would you like to share with us about the country? Well, obviously, my, they have my total support, but as an American-born Jew, uh, I always think of the United States as my wife. I love her dearly, but I can argue with her back and forth. I always think of Israel as my mother, although I, many times I disagree with her, Many times I, I argue with her, but I find it very difficult to condemn or to deny my mother. I just, I just hope that uh, some sanity will reign or, and that, uh, that Semites will live as brothers in a real holy land. When Carola Ruth Siegel was 10 years old, she waved goodbye to her parents in Germany and began an orphan's journey that eventually took her to Palestine. She was there when Israel became a nation, and she served in the Israeli army, and later came to America, where we know her as, well, you know her as Dr. Ruth, I know her as Dr. Ruthie. Oh, I like that. <laughs> oh, I like that. After the show on the other side, too. You were actually there 40 years ago on the Day of Independence. Yes, did you have to say my age? But it's true, it's true. What was it like that day? Uh, oh, that day in Jerusalem was just, there is just no experience that can equal it. Is there something that because you I danced a whole night. We were shouting a whole night. It was a most exciting day. We didn't know that the next day there would be some troubles and that I would be in the Haganah. And I want you to know, my friend the mayor, that I was a sniper. And uh, I, I was badly wounded in Jerusalem oh. and uh, in 1948. Um, the reason that sometimes uh, I don't talk about these things is because what you just said. Uh, in 1939, when I went to Switzerland because of World War II, that was the last time I saw my parents. So it is difficult for me uh, to talk about those things that I usually talk about at the same time. Tonight is different. The war is over. I went to then Palestine. I became a kibbutznik. I picked tomatoes. You cleaned for, too. I certainly did. <laughs> oh, my, she, re she really read it. I worked very hard, and I did realize then at the age of 16 uh, that I'm going to be without How did you get on one of those boats like Exodus? Yes. I came to then uh, Palestine on a boat that uh, was filled with people, and I tell you one thing, you want to know about sex. Well, no, no wait a second. Face. No, no, I know. The whole night. Wait a second. Wait. You wrote in one of your books you had your first sexual experience in Israel, right? Yeah. <laughs> Boy. Anyway, I mean, that, that, that gives you some idea of how closely and emotionally so many Jews are tied to Israel, which doesn't mean you can't criticize its government, its policy. I mean, even, there are Jews who even question its existence. And although I believe the IDF has to root out Hamas, let me remind you of this. In the 1980s, when, um, when Israel uh, and, the, and the IDF and the Air Force were shelling Lebanon, hundreds of civilians were killed in, in Lebanon. 
Ronald Reagan called Menachem Begin and said, you've got to stop this. You've got to put an end to this for a while. This is a holocaust. And Begin was aghast that Reagan used, uh, you know, that uh, singular word. But he did. And Menachem Begin did stop the shelling two days later. Of course, there were other things that happened in Lebanon and I, I, I won't go into that right now, but I should point out um, Denise Richardson is the woman who was sitting there with me, uh, who was my co-host on Evening Magazine. and I've had so many co-hosts in my life. Uh, she is probably the sweetest, most compassionate. And if there is a Yiddish w- word for women that means mensch, it would really well apply to her. So I know this is a very long podcast. So what you know, maybe you watched half of it and then you come back and watch the second half. Maybe you agree with me or you disagree with me. If you do, please post your comments wherever this is posted on Facebook or on YouTube. Tell your friends about it. Please feel free to share it everywhere you can. And uh, as I said. All right, it's a long podcast, but I'm not going to be around. Uh, You won't have Dick Bay to kick around anymore. Uh, Well, at least not until uh, we're in 2024. I will be in New York. So until my return, all my best. 